Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I'm Nika Spaulding. And today we are jumping into the book of Lamentations. And so we're going to look at Lamentations chapter one, verses one through 11. And what we're going to talk about today is actually that there's two main voices in the book of chapter one, but today is voice number one, which I'll explain. And tomorrow will be predominantly voice number two. But as I read through, you're going to hear at one point, voice two interrupting voice one, and it's going to be very subtle. Uh, but let's see if your ears can pick it up. And if not, I'll, of course, point it out to you. And so, and I used to read from the ESV exclusively. I'm now expanding that out to include other translations. So today I'm going to be reading from Robert Alter's translation of the Old Testament. And so, um, yeah, so without further ado, here is Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And this is the word of the Lord. How she sits alone, the city once great with people. She has become like a widow. Great among nations, mistress among provinces, reduced to forced labor. She weeps on through the night, and her tears are on her cheek. She has no consoler from all her lovers, and all her friends have betrayed her, have become enemies to her. Judah is exiled in affliction and in hard labor. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her pursuers overtake her in straits. The roads of Zion mourn without festival pilgrims. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are sorrow-stricken, and she, it is bitter for her. Her foes are at the head. Her enemies are tranquil, for the Lord has stricken her with sorrow because of all of her trespasses. Her babes have fallen captive before the foe, and from Zion's daughter is departed all her glory. Her nobles have become like stags that find no pasture, and they go without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem recalls in the days of her affliction and her wandering all her treasures that were in days of yore, as when her people fell to the foe's hand, with none to help her. The foe saw her, and they laughed over her disasters. An offense did Jerusalem commit, therefore she became despised. All who honored her degrade her, for they have seen her nakedness. She, on her part, groans and has fallen back. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She has no mind of her future, and she plunges wondrously. There is none to console her. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy is boasting. The foe has laid his hand on all her treasures, for she has seen nations come into her sanctuary, of whom I charge they must not come into assembly with you. All her people groaned, seeking bread. They gave their treasures for food to revive their failing lives. See, O Lord, and look, for she has become cheapened. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I want you guys to imagine uh, you're watching the nightly news and a massive mansion in your town, if you have those in your town, has burned to the ground, like gone, rubble, gone. And I want you to imagine what it's like when the news shows up, because we see this all the time, right? There's different kinds of interviews. So the first interview is with an outsider, right? It's cousin Jimmy, neighbor Jimmy down the road, and Jimmy comes up and he's like, oh my gosh, this used to be the most beautiful house on the entire block, and boom, gone, watched it burn, brought my marshmallows out, phew, gone, right? That's Jimmy. Usually it's a good soundbite, becomes an internet meme, because Jimmy's going to say something crazy or use some metaphor we've never heard of before. He's going to be like, burn like a hot willard on a Saturday night or something like that. I don't know, I just made that up. Like, who knows? Who knows what Jimmy's going to say? But then if the newscaster sends out their ace news reporter, they're going to get an interview with who? With somebody who lived in the house. 
And then how's that interview going to go? Completely different. Tears. They're, they're, they are like, they can't believe it, right? They've got their hand on their head and they're pushing their hair back and they're, they're not even able to look into the camera and they're just saying things like, what are we going to do next? That was my home, my memories. This is where I raised my kids. This is where I fell in love, right? Where, where you know, how am I ever going to replace that portrait that my friend made of my dead mom, right? I mean, st- things like that, right? Like, so there's like these massive differences when a traumatic event has happened from a bystander versus the person who experienced it or was at least involved in it, okay? That's a very bad but somewhat good example of what's going on in Lamentations 1, okay? In the entire chapter, verses 1 through 22, there's two voices. And what's happening in chapter 1 is we're really looking at, okay, here is a widow, who is bereaved of both her husband and her children. And we're going to call that widow Lady Zion. And she represents Jerusalem. She's the insider voice. She's the one who has experienced Babylon coming in and taking her out. We talked about in chapter one, right? It's her temple that was destroyed. It's her people that have been carried off. It's her city that's now in rubble. The first voice, though, that we hear is we're going to call him the narrator. The narrator writes like an outsider. He's commenting on Lady Jerusalem as well as on Jerusalem, but not from the inside. And he's not he's not like neighbor Jimmy where he's like insane and we're going to get some memes. Like He seems to have some like um, he, he's not completely unmoved by the distress of Jerusalem, but he's also writing like an outsider like, whoa man, this place used to be great. Now look at it. And then we're going to have this switch. So I told you at the very beginning, if you're, if you have a very discerning ear, you'll be able to catch when voice number two, Lady Zion interrupts voice number one. And the way you'll know is because it's first person and it's very, it's very emotive. When we get into her chapter tomorrow, it's going to be very emotive, very emotional, very personal. And it's a lot of her talking directly to God going, where are you? Why is nobody comforting me? Somebody look at me, right? And so we'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay, so I told you at the beginning, we're going to look at um, if you ever so slightly could hear that switch of voice, and it happens in chapter nine. And so it starts with her uncleanness, 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 I don't know how to say that word, is in her skirts. She has no mind of her future. She plunders wondrously. There's no one to console her. And then listen to the switch. See, oh Lord, my affliction for the enemy is boasting. It's like this interruption. It's like the narrator is like talking about like, oh my goodness, look at how far Jerusalem has fallen. And then she interrupts and she's like, look at my affliction, Lord. And then the narrator picks back up. And then in chapter 11, where we picked, where we stopped today is actually we're going to pick up. And then she has, she's going to pick up after that. And she's going to be the main voice that we talk about tomorrow. But I just wanted to point that out. And so for today, Again, now we've got this outside. We've got the narrator's point of view. And what he is doing is he is really just trying to paint a picture of how unbelievably different Jerusalem is compared to her heyday. It's like he's trying to get the point across. And this is the main thrust of what he's doing is you've gone from glory to dust. You've gone from jewel in this city set on a hill and set apart. Wow, beautiful. Wow. To tumbleweeds falling. And to give you an idea of what we're talking about, so let's take a snapshot from like, let's say, I don't know, 900 BC, right? Solomon has already built the temple. Solomon's built up incredible wealth. He's brought in cedars from Lebanon, right? This is all taking place around 1000 BC-ish, 950 BC, somewhere in there. 
And Solomon dedicates the temple. The glory of the Lord comes down. There's a ton of wealth. The, the country is still united at this point. It's going to split after Solomon. And so all of a sudden you're looking, you're going, wow, this city has wealth. This city has protection. This city has God on its side. Like, oh my goodness, the, the temple has gold in it and this very precious cedar. And it's, it's an absolute monument to architecture in the ancient world. It's unbelievable. Okay, and then fast forward 400 years, 586 BC, temple's been destroyed, wealth has been plundered, walls have been knocked down, right? You don't have a king sitting on his throne, you don't have your priest doing the sacrifices, the pilgrimages that people come to all the time, the festivals, done for, gone, all of that is gone. And so I was trying to think of like, what would be like a modern day equivalent? And it's a little bit like, so like New York City is like this city for America that's still got this like like this cultural cachet, like the city that buzzes, right? I mean, it's like if you were to go to New York City or Manhattan or, or you know, and just walk around, like you've got Times Square and the neon and it's bright and you've got Broadway and you've got shows and you've got, you know, monumental buildings that are getting bigger all the time and the skyline, like it's unbelievable. It's just this unbelievable city. And then imagine, for whatever reason, some foreign enemy comes in, carries everybody of Manhattan off. It's gone. There are a few people left, but there's no more Broadway. No one's coming to Broadway. There's no more Times Square. It's just an empty Times Square. There's just like, you know, tumbleweeds, like wild, wild west. And it's just, you know, like empty. Like it would be truly bizarre. And if we had a narrator, like we do right here in the beginning of Lamentations, it'd be like, wow. Right, your Times Square mourns because there's no longer anything to advertise, and your Broadway weeps because your all your artists are gone. Right, that's a lot of what's happening here. It's like you had this unbelievable high high, you had glory, you had goodness, and then it all gets drawn into dust. And the narrator is going to great lengths to to describe this, and so he uses cultic language and shame language to talk about it, and then hyperbolic language. So I want to talk about those three things. So the cultic, I don't mean cultic in like a negative sense. Cultic is just this word that talk about like cultic practices is like religious practices. So in Jerusalem is the is the center at this point in time of all religious festival activity right so there were main pilgrimages where people would come to jerusalem you got passover you got pentecost you would come in come up to jerusalem you had psalms that were dedicated to that that you would sing along the way you bring your whole family you come you do your sacrifices you'd celebrate you would eat these meals together right you have priests an entire family line of the levites that that's their job like that is what they were born to do and they served in that way and they served in that capacity. And then you've got all these like cultic things that are going on. And the narrator's like, yeah, no, like that's not happening anymore. Your festivals are gone. Your priests are groaning. Like that's not happening anymore. Then you have this shame language that's also going on where, especially in verse eight, I just want to point this out where he says things like, oh, I've gone too far. Let me back up. Verse eight, he says, an offense did Jerusalem commit. So it's your fault. But listen, you have become despised. The people who used to honor you now degrade you. They've seen your nakedness. You have uncleanness on your skirt or uncleanness. If I ever figure out how to say that word, that'd be great. Should have learned that before this podcast, but that's neither here nor there. It's fine. But anyways, it's shame language. And so remember, this is an honor shame culture. All the things that you do have a reflection upon your family and your community. So you're always trying to do things that bring honor, not shame, because it has far reaching effects. And so the author, the narrator who's writing this down, like they're going to great lengths to say, look, not only has bad things happened, like it's one thing for your house to burn down, right? 
you're like, okay, well, that's not my fault. Like my house burned down. But it's another thing if your house burns down because you were having an affair with someone and you knocked over the candle that you had lit while you were having the affair and you both had to run out of the house butt naked and then your husband comes home and catches you having an affair and then the neighbors all see it and they pull out their phones and start recording and next thing you know, you're all over Facebook. Like this is like literally a worst nightmare type thing scenario. That is more of what's happening to Jerusalem is you committed sins and now you are full of shame. People who once honored you now despise you and you need to turn away from them. That your nakedness is showing, which is a way of saying like you've been exposed. You, your, your iniquity is on full display. The whole world is laughing at you because you were once the crown jewel of the ancient world. God was with you. God was on your side. You had the land. You had the blessing. You had the temple. You had all this stuff. And now we're laughing at you because you failed to do what you were supposed to do to maintain all these gifts that God gave you because he's a gracious God. So we have cultic language, we have shame language, and then we even have like this hyperbolic language, right? He's like, the roads mourn, your gates are desolate. Like it's this idea of like, everything's sad, everything's broken. This is a complete and utter reversal of all the glory that you had. And so over and over again, it gets this idea in chapter one, the first half, is the narrator comes in, he's an outsider, he walks into Jerusalem and he's just like, wow, this is bad, bad. And he's going to paint a very bleak picture. Now, we historically know how bleak that was, right? We know that Babylon comes in. Um, they, there were multiple wars. At one point, Jerusalem tries to put up a fight, and it doesn't work. And they come in, and then they really thrash them. And so we have, like, this historical evidence of just how bad this conquest really was. They go into the temple. They steal their wealth. They carry off their important people. And then it, it's just multiple deportations take place. And so it's just, I mean, people died, y'all. Like, Houses and, and, and temples and places of significance were destroyed. And it's, and then like, and it talks about like you went from wealth to poverty, you know, overnight, essentially you, you used to have treasures and now you're selling treasures for bread. Okay. So he's, he's painting this picture of how bleak it went from glory to dust. And so what's my, so what I am not unmoved by the plight of Jerusalem. And that's really what's going to be the next tomorrow the second half is even though it's her fault and that's what I want to point to is over and over again the narrator is clear to point out but it's your fault like the reason why you went from glory to dust is because your sins your iniquity your transgressions now that doesn't mean we're not going to have empathy and I know I know in the world today there are some people say it's sin to have empathy for people who are suffering because of their own sin I think that's bananas y'all I think that is absolutely ludicrous but either way we'll talk about it tomorrow But today, I want to point out how quickly this great city goes from pinnacle to pit, from top to bottom, from a complete reversal because of her sin. And here's what I want to point out. So for 400 years, Jerusalem has been a a hub of activity and growth and wealth, okay? Now, multiple kings have come through. There was clearly the kingdom had been split. But one of the things that you hear in Christian culture is, well, if it, healthy things grow. So if it's growing, it must be healthy. And if there was ever an example of how ridiculous that is, one, it's just things like cancer and weeds grow ridiculously fast. So just from the world, lots of unhealthy things grow. But Jerusalem's a warning to us because I, I mentioned this in the Amos passage, right? Amos comes and he's like, hey, Jeroboam the second, hey, bro, um, you're doing wrong. And Jeroboam's like, hey, man, I'm expanding the borders here. If I'm so wrong, why do we have wealth and our land is expanding? 
And one of the things that we have to be careful of as Christians is what is our metric by which we measure health? If it's just growth, right? You can be rich and people go, oh, that must be so good. He must be such a good businessman. Look at how wealthy he is. And yet we forget, well, you might be accumulating wealth on the backs of exploiting your employees. We see this all the time, right? So, so money can't be a complete indicator of the health of a company. That's not a good indicator. And so just like a good indicator of our churches cannot just be the size of the church. Many people today, I'm, I'm recording this in August 2021, there are people today that are enamored with the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which I don't mean to pick on Mars Hill, but it's part of the zeitgeist, so here we go. You know, Mars Hill once was this massive multi-campus, massive church with a massive reach. But people could have told you from the get-go there was rotten and strange fruit. The fruit of misogyny, the fruit of abuse, the fruit of power, right? The fruit of, of manipulation and the fruit of using, uh, you know, your power and esteem to create a brand rather than being jealous for the glory of God to be on display and for love and joy and peace and patience to be the fruit at which you're tending to on your vine. And so here's what I'd say is this first half of this chapter to go from such glory to have princes and kings and temples and worship to you're selling your treasures for bread. It's a warning to us of how to, what's the metric by which we measure health. And here's what I say. Many of you aren't going to plant churches and that, like, I have to consider this. I'm a church planner. I'm a pastor. I got to consider these things. Like, what is it? How do I measure this health of St. Jude Oak Cliff? right? If it's, if it's butts in the seats, <laughs> that is not a good metric, right? Are people growing in Christ-likeness? Are people being loved? Are marriages growing and being healthy and strengthened? Are families being strengthened? Like, these are the metrics I've got to worry about. But for all of you, you have your own metrics. And here's, my, here's what I want to consider you is, for years, Jerusalem's metrics were probably how much money's in the temple, how big is our border, how much, how much you know, are we esteemed by our neighbors, and these can be metrics that you do. How much money do you have in your bank account? How good do you look on your social media? What kind of cultural cachet have you built from your brand, right? And none of those, none of those are good ways to measure health. In fact, they're ludicrous. And they might ask you to do things that Christ would say, please don't, in order to build. Instead, is your life marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is the wealth that you're building being used for generosity and goodness and being given back to the Lord? Is it being built upon healthy and non-exploitative work? Is, is the family that you're building not because you've got insecurities and a need for control and so you're trying to build something of your own, you know, family, whatever, but instead because you believe that God desires for families to be healthy and flourishing and growing? Like, what is your metric for how you measure health? And if it's anything short of, I'm asking God to make me what it is that he wants to make me, which is made more into the image of his son and to be filled with his spirit so that that fruit is what emanates. If it's anything less than that, you got a broken metric. So fix it and measure yourself against that. Otherwise, Jerusalem is your warning, right? It's a beautiful warning that we have in the scriptures of if you measure your success on things of the world, then don't be surprised when the world takes those things away. All right, friends, I went a little long today. I apparently got a lot to say, but I love you all. So if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, God is crazy about you. Peace.